we're what? all gonna die anyway. I might as well <laughs> get a nice warm October out of it. It's Friday, October 12th, 2018, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and carpet critic, and with me today is my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News and Nazi Museum correspondent Gordon Derrick, and Paul Peters, Dutch News's avocado correspondent and occasional student. Molly, why are you a carpet critic? Because I was in an event yesterday that was in a place that had carpeted floors done in such a pattern that they looked like hardwood floors and it was oh. extremely disturbing and yeah. weird yeah, and I okay. did not enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And so that. I complained about this on Twitter and then was told that this is like You art. were attacked by all the carpet yeah. loving Exactly. Uh, I was told on, that on this internet. is art and that I should appreciate the design. Oh it was art. It's uh, yeah, it's, right. and it's design and I should appreciate it. There's yeah. also a yeah, peanut butter floor. There's a peanut butter floor? Yes, uh, it's an artwork in, I think it's the Boymans van Beuningen Museum. We're going to talk about yeah, that right, later okay. on. Yeah. Um, I think it was there. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's made by an artist, like 50 square meters of, of peanut butter. Um, that's an artwork. Is it like sticky or is it like covered in something? No, it's just uh, peanut, peanut butter, butter. On the yeah. floor. Yeah. Can yeah. you walk on it? Well, that's the thing. You're not supposed to walk on that. But one of the visitors accidentally stepped into it once. And he had to pay a lot of money to have it repaired. Wow. How does it not rot? Does peanut butter yeah. like not go bad no. ever? Okay. No. Did they steal this artwork from some oppressed <laughs> Jewish family? Is it oppressed Jewish family peanut butter that they use for the artwork? Yeah, it's Nazi peanut butter. It's, Nazi it's very, Nazi very special. Um, but there's no like barrier around this. No, like, no, of course this dude stepped in it. Yeah. yeah. Also, I don't know why he had to pay a lot of money. Like, he could have just gone to the Albert Hein and gotten some peanut butter and like, like, smoothed just, it just over. Just got a knife and just spread it. Back it would have been again. fine. That would have cost him absolutely nothing. So, in your mind, there should be a clear distinction then between carpets and flooring. Yeah, I, I In the think... same way, there probably should be a clear distinction between autumn and summer. And <laughs> between strobwafels and spices. Can we agree on all this now? No, no, we cannot. <laughs> I just look at that and I think it should just be sprinkled all over with Hartelslach. Yeah, Can you imagine being the maintenance guy that got called that day to be like, <laughs> and he's like, what's on the job schedule for today? Like, you're going to spread peanut butter over a 50 square meter part, part of floor. Sh- shouldn't the artist doing that? I think so. I, think I, don't, so. Know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So speaking of uh, peanut butter floors, that peanut butter is located at a certain museum, mm. and uh, it is the reason that you are our Nazi museum correspondent, Gordon. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Well, not too much, because we're going to talk about it in discussion, aren't we? But it's about the Boymans von Bernian Museum in uh, Rotterdam, uh, which in the war, the, the director was uh, unfortunately uh, a Nazi sympathizer, and there's all kinds of uh, stories about, about that uh, that we'll, we'll come on to in the course of our discussion, which is going to be about uh, art theft. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very interesting uh, and topic. Paul, speaking yes. of... Things that you can spread on toast. <laughs> tell wow, us you, about your. You are on fire I am today, on fire Molly, yeah. today. Please tell us about uh, your uh, avocado situation. Uh, yeah, I saw a uh, a clip from uh, QI, a BBC program, I believe, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and uh, they explained that avocados are in reality not vegan. And why are avocados not vegan? Because in order to cultivate avocados, you need bees, a lot of bees. And therefore, they drive around with trucks uh, with hundreds of bees all around the countryside uh, in order to cultivate the avocados. This involves an unnatural 
use of animals and therefore avocados are, are not vegan. vegan. Mm. Interesting. I have a, a number of friends and family members who are vegan and I have a friend who declares that honey is acceptable because bees are not cute. So I guess she <laughs> avocados are yeah. also fine. Well, but it's the same way why some vegans don't eat honey because yeah. it also involves yeah. the unnatural use of bees. But yeah. yeah, therefore you can't eat broccoli, avocado, uh, all sorts of vegetables. But the uh, Vegan Institute or some sort of uh, organization put on their website a lot of explanation why it's uh, okay for you as a vegan to eat avocado. So there are a lot of loopholes. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it's like, it. It's like any religion, right? Yeah, it's there's like, a lot exactly, of loopholes. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly like, you know, they have all the Catholic edicts about why it's now okay to eat fish on Fridays when it wasn't before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And the beavers are fish. Did you know yeah. this? Yeah. That yeah. the Catholic considers yeah, these. That's an excellent fact. So, speaking of some alpaf, uh, Paul, what is our alpaf of the week? The alpaf of the week is about uh, the famous red and white letters I Amsterdam yeah. in Amsterdam. You can see them, uh, for example, uh, in front of the Rijksmuseum or um, yeah. facing the uh, Museumplein. They are very famous and they are very popular with tourists to take photos with. But the ruling GroenLinks party wants to get rid of it. And uh, it seems to have uh, enough support uh, for a majority in the city council. And also on our Facebook page. When we posted the story on Facebook, people were overwhelmingly in favor of, of dumping. Uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm in favor of keeping them. Really? Yeah, Mainly because last time I went there, my uh, nine-year-old son occupied himself for a good half hour climbing over the letters. And that yeah. kept him quiet. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and GroenLinks wants, wants to get rid of it because it is uh, a, a tourist trap right now and it's a symbol for the Disneyfication of the city. And secondly, and that's where the Ophef was about, because the slogan is too individualistic. And it doesn't stand for a city for uh, which stands for solidarity and diversity. It's funny though that that's their argument because like I thought that it was basically saying like, you know, I am Amsterdam in the same way that like everyone is Amsterdam mm, and that yeah. is like a diverse sort of yes. thought yeah. process. Well, just like in every religion, you have uh, certain yeah, ways of explaining <laughs> yeah, true, sort of things. But I'm just wondering, are, is GroenLinks going to get rid of the I in their name too? Oh, I don't know. There's no I in team. No team, no. Yeah, that's true. Something that did not cause any alpef this week, Gordon, is uh, how well the Dutch News donation drive is doing. Yes, perhaps a big thanks uh, to uh, all those people who've donated. Dutch News uh, launched a donation drive two weeks ago uh, yes. online, and uh, we've uh, received uh, many generous donations, uh, which will keep us going and keep this podcast rolling. So thank you for that, and please keep them coming in. Yeah, and if you uh, if you want to support the podcast, there'll be yeah. a we have a little commercial. We'll link to the donation. Yeah, and drive we, we did talk notes. last week to me about um, merchandise. There are some kind of Dutch News mugs in the offing. Possibly not the personal. Uh, ones because of the copyright issues. But yeah, there's there some will be... we discovered there's some copyright issues yeah. with our original plan. So, so I'm not sure that's going to work out, but there will be some kind of Dutch News logo mug or something. Uh, we'll figure it out by, by the end of March, but by Brexit date. Yeah. By Brexit we'll, date. We'll, we'll, we'll get yeah, but actually, maybe what we should <laughs> yeah. do is, is sell the mugs to sponsor Gordon being able to continue yeah. to stay in the Netherlands. <laughs> yes, please. Yes. You are going to get kicked out in March, right? On the current form, I probably will be, yeah. Yeah. This week, we'll tell you why Mark Rutte was giving directions to Angela Merkel, why the Desessesestag is endorsing child labor, and why a jogger got a surprise in Utrecht. It came as a big shock, but Alexander Pechtold announced on Saturday he would stand down as leader of the Desessesestag party and would quit as an MP. Pechtold has been leading the party for 12 years, which is currently in the government coalition. Bertolt was recently involved in a number of scandals, such as an apartment in Scheveningen he received as a gift from a former Canadian diplomat, which he refused to report to the parliament's official gift register, and his ex-girlfriend, who accused him publicly of abuse of power and making personal attacks. In his speech, Bertolt said, I'm leaving the stage now, I have given everything, and it's time for new leadership. 
So what did his career look like in this serving? Yeah, Pertot started his uh, political career in the spotlights as the interior minister in 2004. Before that, he was the mayor of uh, Wageningen. He started very young. I think he was uh, 28 or something. When yeah, he the day says assessing, yeah. big on child labor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to get there. Wait a minute. Um, yeah, he was a fresh and young face back then and made headlines when he said, as a minister, politics was a dirty business. Back then, that was shocking. Uh, in oh, 2004. Yeah. Such a oh, the innocent time. days. <laughs> innocent days. Yeah. In uh, 2006, the party uh, stepped out of the coalition and Pertolt uh, took over as its uh, leader. And that was a point where the party only had three seats in parliament. And uh, there was also a point in time the party didn't have any seats in the polls. Wow. So that was a pretty hard time for Deza Sesesta. But he managed to lead the party back on its feet. Um, and he became one of the best known uh, figures in politics. He was, uh, for example, the one who would uh, always stand up against uh, Geert Wilders. Deza became known as the anti-PVV party, more or less. And uh, Pertot said in his speech on Saturday that one of his uh, goals when he uh, took over as leader was uh, to put Deza Sester in government. And he's reached that point now. So uh, now he feels it's time for him to uh, resign. Yeah. And was there a sense maybe that uh, Pertot felt he, he'd taken it really as far as he can go? Because, of course, you know, the, the party did well at the last election. In fact, done well, I think, in about four or five elections in a row, gradually built up its support. And then actually it started to slip back in the polls because it's now in government and it's had to implement some policies are quite unpopular, such as uh, driving through abolishing the uh, advisory referendum. Yeah, he leaves the party now in a, in a pretty pretty hard time. As you said, the polls are, uh, are, are, are slipping away. Uh, the numbers of the polls are slipping away. And also, they said was, was was founded in, on the basis of a couple of key goals. One of them was the elected prime minister, elected mayors, uh, a referendum, abolishing the Eerste Kamer. And in the more than 50 years we have they said now they didn't manage to to reach any of these points even uh, even stronger than that uh, they said abolished the law that allowed a referendum so yeah what's the point of having they yeah. in government if any, none of these key goals can be uh, can be accomplished yeah and they tried to introduce uh, elected mayors in a previous parliament didn't they and that fell through in the senate i think yeah and then uh, yeah and as you say and the odd thing is yeah the, the correct referendum came in when Deza Sester was in opposition and has now been abolished while they're in government yeah. which is really strange yeah if you got rid of the Erstekammer, what would you call the Tweedekammer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, one of the questions in the, in the D66 uh, party conference. So do they already have a new leader? They do. Um, on Tuesday, the MPs of D66 voted for the new leader. Uh, in the Tweede Kamer, that is. Um, and they found him at the daycare center. <laughs> <on> the <street. laughs> yeah, they found him through uh, Amber Alert. Yeah. Guess, yeah. Um, the new leader is Rob Jette. He's 31 years old, but he looks like he's 12. He has only been MP for one and a half years now. So the question is, is he experienced enough to, to fight against uh, Buma and Rutte and Dijkhoff? in the uh, coalition uh, meetings they have every Monday. He was uh, the MP who defended the scrapping of the uh, referendum law and uh, because of the way he dealt with that, he was regarded as a very uh, promising MP and now he's become uh, the leader of the party. As we said, he also takes over at a time where they said polls numbers have dropped very sharply. Uh, he is also quite criticized for the way he gives interviews. He, uh, yeah. yeah, we yeah. saw a video of him. He was asked uh, three questions and he answered them all identically the yeah. same. 
He needs to work on his media he, presence. Yes. He even needs some media training. He's like a, the politician from a book. Yeah. You know? yeah. He has been called, has he not been nicknamed uh, Robo Yet? Robot Yet. Robot Yet. So he needs to. I mean, they, I, I'm, I'm afraid they elected an even more unlikable person than Alexander Pechtold. <laughs> I like Alexander Pechtold. Well, yeah, I was kind of fun with Alexander Pechtold. Yeah. You know, I think if you are a D66 yeah. voter. That may be true. That may be true, but I think. A lot of people don't. Uh, don't like him at all. And as we mm. said, he, he's been in politics for 12 years now. Um, I mean, I think he made the right call in stepping down, right? That he's been kind of plagued recently by a few of these scandals. And that, like, you know, at some point you just can't do maybe more. I think it's it, it says something about him that he's willing to sort of say, okay, somebody else needs to take this over. Whether or not having a person who is literally still wearing diapers <laughs> on the pile of a yeah. floor, I don't know. But I guess we'll see. I don't know. I mean... Pechtold became, you know, yeah. famous in this way, right? And started out at the same age, as what you, like what you said. I mean, Jesse Klaver is not too much older than he is. Yeah, and, and uh, Jesse Klaver, Lilian Marens, and there seems to be a some vogue of uh, people in the... Yeah, party, lead, party leaders in their early 30s. Cherry Baudet. So, Cherry yeah. Baudet. He's actually uh, the oldest of that group. Yeah. Cherry Baudet is in his... Yeah. his, his but has the youngest group. girlfriend somehow. Following the announcement last week that Unilever will not be relocating from London to Rotterdam had put the government plans to scrap the dividend belasting into question. The so-called dividend tax refers to the tax that is withheld from the profits distributed to shareholders and in the Netherlands mostly affects foreign investors. Prime Minister Mark Rutte says the tax should be scrapped to encourage more companies to relocate to the Netherlands ahead of Brexit, despite an estimate that it will cost the Dutch Treasury 2 billion euros. The plan to scrap the tax has been unpopular, and now the government says it will need to reevaluate its entire tax plan. Meanwhile, the Advocate General said in a legal opinion to the Dutch Supreme Court that legal challenges by foreign forums to force the government to get rid of the tax do not stand a chance. The legal challenges were another reason the government listed for scrapping the tax, but the Advocate General says that the Dutch tax does not conflict with EU rules on free capital movements and that foreign firms are not being discriminated against. So, if it's such an unpopular measure, why is the government going forward with it? That is an excellent question, Paul. <laughs> uh, one to which no one seems to have a super clear answer. No. Uh, it wasn't in any of the party platforms. Somehow it made it into the coalition agreement, despite the fact that none of the parties in the coalition are really like advocating for it. It is extremely unpopular with the general public. Mark Rutte has argued that it's good for business. Other experts have said, yeah, it's not really going to encourage businesses to relocate. As we've seen. As mm. we've seen. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Unilever is sort of the straw that broke the dividend belasting camel's back, yeah, yeah, there was just no argument for it really anymore, was there? And now the government has 1.9 billion euros to spend it didn't expect to have. So have you got any indications of uh, where that money might go? Is it going to go on schools, uh, Subsidizing, education? finding new flavors for stroke waffles. They don't need that. There, so, is, there were some rumors that came out this morning, which was a bit late for us to do like a more extensive discussion into this, but that they were going to use some of that money to allow for a transition period or scrap the plan altogether of reducing the 30% rolling. So I think we will probably talk about that more next week if something comes of this. Yeah, and I think yesterday, uh, being Thursday, uh, there was um, uh, there was a meeting about this and that uh, uh, I saw a line that uh, they were um, that the government was considering um, cutting the top rate of corporate tax, corporation tax further. Yeah. So uh, yeah. in a moment it's, it's due to come down to 22.25% and they're now talking about 21%. So a lot of the money is going to go on other, other measures to stimulate business because yeah. of course it is a centre-right cabinet. 
Which, I mean, actually, I, I'm pretty in favor of cutting corporate taxes because basically people just pay them, not corporations, because you just pay them in what you buy from the corporation. But that is a, that is an argument. That's for, a different discussion. That's a whole yeah. different discussion, yeah. and I do not need any more emails from angry economists <laughs> bitching yeah, me out. Yeah. But it is expected that we'll um, uh, spend this money uh, to, 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 to improve the business climate of the Netherlands yeah. because that was the idea of the... Uh, I'm just saying, if you have a stroopwafel startup, now might be a good time to try to look for some government subsidy because they might be willing to uh, to invest. Or at times you just take the money and then burn your stroopwafel, producing normal stroopwafels. But they've said that there's going to be more investment in public spending. But I mean, there is, on the other hand, there is an election like five months away. I can't believe they aren't going to chuck in a couple of sweeteners. Yeah, I think the teachers will probably get something. They have been quite cranky. And probably yeah. the police. The police. Will get I think more the police money. are definitely. Yeah. The favorite day is the party of the police, so I'm yeah. sure they will find some money somewhere for. And pr- they'll probably try to throw some things at like these sort of quote unquote average Dutchmen. I don't know, tax. Make a thousand euros for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> just actual cash, yeah. or yeah. you know, the sort of reduction in 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 taxes for for homeowners or something like the you know one of these things that they try to give to the quote unquote average dutchman yeah but the coalition is gonna gonna have to find some ways to to please the opposition parties because after the elections when the eerste kamer uh, gets chosen they're going going to need them and yeah. if they are going to sweeten them now mm. they might be more willing to cooperate uh, exactly, when, when yeah. they need them like soften them up a bit yeah so yeah. what do we think then they're going to give a lot of stuff to uh for animal rights, so that uh, <laughs> they will vote in favor of uh, vote in favor of things. More Bibles in school that yeah. you get the SKP blow. Yeah, another no line to the a end bigger though. flag. That's yeah. what we need. They should take some of the money and spend it on a bigger flag. Yeah. I did yeah. see a picture this morning actually of Mark Rutter giving a tour of the Rijksmuseum to a group of school children. Yeah. So maybe. I mean, that's also that. a good way for the government yeah. to make money. Just make MPs yeah. like do yeah. things at <laughs> cultural institutions. It's fine. A new feature of this year's Sinterklaas celebrations is the Svarte Piet trials. 34 people have been summoned to court in Leovarden this week to defend their decision to blockade a motorway in Friesland last November. The hashtag Blockierfriesen, as they've been christened on Twitter, held up a... <laughs> this is true. This is true, yeah. This is the official hashtag money. <laughs> they held up a busload of anti-Svarte Piet protesters on their way to last year's official arrival parade in Dokkum. In court, they explained why they'd taken the law into their own hands rather than take part in the extensive negotiations between the mayor of Dockham and the protesters to ensure that the demonstration could pass off peacefully, which it eventually did when they held it two weeks later. Representatives of the Kickout Svarte Piet organization are demanding 8,000 euros in compensation and say the blockaders should be made to attend a one-day racism awareness workshop. I would also like to attend that workshop. If, I would, if I'd like to be there. I would like to be there. As a spectator. Please, please let me <laughs> yeah. be a fly on the wall. Yeah. I can recommend this great room with a carpeting that looks like wooden floors if they're interested. Yeah. So this, this hashtag Blokkeerfriese, um, um, cameras are not allowed in a courtroom in the Netherlands, but in an internet connection is allowed. So very often in the Netherlands, journalists just sit in a courtroom and they live tweet everything that happens. Right. And Saskia Bellemans, she's a uh, court correspondent of the Telegraaf, she's really known for this. So she sat down in this, uh, in this courtroom and she um, tweeted everything that has been said, including someone who claimed he could couldn't possibly be racist because <laughs> he trades in diamonds. From Africa. From Africa. Yes. Yeah. Uh, of course. There's no <laughs> so racism there's in the diamond mining industry. No, no, no. So, so you see all these tweets about everything that happens there, including there was also a marriage proposal. Yeah, I was, can, we, can we discuss the marriage proposal briefly? What 
happened. Sure, two of the um, uh, defendants, uh, they had very uh, remarkable hair. They, mm. they, they had a matching um, mohawk. Mo yeah. pur purple mohawks. Purple maybe. mohawks yeah. matching. And yeah. um, before, the, before the trial started... Uh, had they just run out of black paint and had to use purple <laughs> instead? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. And before the, the court started, uh, the, the guy uh, thought it was a good idea to uh, propose to, to, the, to, the, to his girlfriend. And she said yes. Well, that's good. And um, he also had to leave um, the uh, wooden clogs uh, outside the courtroom because you could possibly throw it to someone. Yes, he, was, he showed up wearing wooden clogs in a there, there were several, people, several people several, yeah. showed up in clogs. Yeah. Yeah. So you saw these nice photos of all these clogs in a row outside the courtroom. What the hell is wrong with these people? Yeah, they're from Friesland. Yeah. All right, so who is the leader of this uh, movement? Oh um, God, this Nick, I can't even deal with this nickname. Gordon. No, it's a 40-year-old it's a woman called Jenny Dawes who uh, runs a forklift truck company in, uh, in Friesland. Uh, she's been dubbed as Jenny Duck by the, excited, by the Telegraph who've been very excited about this story. So um, Jenny d'Arc, as Jenny you're pronouncing yeah. yeah, Yeah, obviously a reference to Joan of Arc, yeah. uh, the French medieval heroine who was burnt at the stake by the English <laughs> during the Hundred Years' War. She set up a Facebook page called Project Pay, uh, where she called on people to bar the road with, quote, cars, lorries, motorbikes, tractors, and horses and carts. Why not any forklifts? She has a forklift. <laughs> <laughs> She's not very committed to this movement, I think. No. Uh, Missed when, opportunity here, yeah. <laughs> when police contacted her to warn her this could be seen as inciting unrest, she took the message down, but by then the cat was out of the bag. Um, in court, she said she wanted to protect her children from the protesters, even though the, uh, the council had given them an, a designated area away from the main parade and the protest was going to happen before Sinterklaas passed, passed through. Was that the, the worst excuse so far? Um, no, so the, it was quite a bad excuse. I think the, the other highlight of her uh, testimony, I think, was she, she decided she'd give her evidence in Frisian. Oh, yeah. Because she said that that was her actually native first language. I mean, then, I, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that at all. Um, what was strange, though, was that when she was asked why she didn't write her Facebook page uh, message in Frisian, she said, oh, I can't write it. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, now I'm back to having a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that was quite a bad excuse. But also, maybe the highlight for me was a character called uh, Jan Zed, uh, who's a biker. He claimed he was just riding about at the weekend, minding his own business, and he got caught up in the blockade by accident. But nevertheless, he then joined the WhatsApp group for the participants <laughs> in the blockade. Uh, he turned up in court in full biker gear and a t-shirt with a man carrying a freezing flag and a pitchfork. Um, the judges also pointed out well, that the, his tattoos on his fist, which uh, they were, were SS tattoos, uh, at which point he stood up right angrily, walked up to the bench, said, I've had enough of this, these are not SS, this is not an SS logo, these are lightning bolts. Mm. Which was the SS <laughs> logo. <laughs> the SS logo, exactly. Um, he was also in a collision with one of the protest buses, and on the basis of that he reported the driver for manslaughter and murder, even though he was actually <laughs> neglecting alive. the fact that he was still alive. Did he, have, uh, did he have a tattoo of a stolen painting somewhere on his, uh, on his body? Or, or? I don't know if he had any art. Well, he had an art going, on his body. I'm going to Friesland next weekend, and now I think I'm scared. Yeah. Oh, you shouldn't. Just avoid everything that has to do with Sweater Pete or Sinterklaas. I mean, that's fine, because I just generally try so to do that, that anyway. So that also means, oh no, you don't like paper notes, never mind. No, it's fine. Yeah, I won't yeah. be eating any paper yeah. notes. Yeah. yeah, but these are kind of, you know, this is his court. There's about half a dozen people outside the courtroom um, with this sort of a banner. They're saying, uh, it's sort to beat as black, but it's kind of... It should be black. It's, it's a like bit that. of, it's, yeah. you know, when you, when you look at the whole, uh, the, the whole thing, it's a bit of a kind of, you know, sort of dollar store extremist uh, movement, yeah. isn't it really? They're not so much Jenny Targ as Jenny van der Blocker. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's a it's a, really I think blocker is a bit of a high end thing compared like that's more of like an, an action, action. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah I think it's a sign that like 
the Zwartipede discussion is slowly on its way out, right? When the only people defending it are people who are showing up in clogs to the courtroom with SS tattoos that you're that you're just, you know, no one, no normal, the average Dutchman does not want to be associated with these people, right? Like you yeah. don't want to put yourself on the same side as defending these traditions as people who are like having actual Nazi symbols on them. And that sort of creates this gulf where I think the quote unquote average Dutchman is sort of like, we don't want to keep having this fight. And I'm sort of tired of these people with yeah, Nazi tattoos. I, yeah, I think what's called what, what's been dubbed the kind of the pro-peak movement is getting increasingly kind of marginal and yeah. ridiculous, frankly. And yeah, and then, yeah the, the, I think the country as a whole is kind of slowly moving on from, yeah. from this now, thankfully. Thankfully. Thankfully, yeah. Normally Gordon is our Brexit correspondent, but he's cried uncle and is trying to pretend the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not, I'm quite, quite fully aware the world's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> I hear that you have applied for a new Brexit-related job, though. Would you like to tell us about there it? There are lots of exciting opportunities coming up in the UK over the next uh, sort of six months, um, because that's when Brexit's going to happen, uh, for people uh, to join the resilience team at the, uh, the Home Office, the Civil Service uh, Division, which is now responsible for apparently um, introducing or devising resilience measures to deal with uh, what they call the disruption um, arising from our decision to exit the European Union. Mm -hmm. So if you're a fan of uh, phrases like um, major emergencies, I think this job description includes the word emergency seven times, then <laughs> there's, you know, the, the, the future's very bright. Yeah, and all, lots of people today are stockpiling uh, food and medicines and, and cheese. Well, and the, cheese. Irish, the Irish are stockpiling cheese now, uh, <laughs> I read this morning. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, King Willem Alexander is not happy about Brexit either. Uh, the Guardian reported on Monday that the king, who has a state visit scheduled to the United Kingdom in November, told reporters that he regrets the UK's impending departure from the EU and that he has seen no evidence that the British government has had any success in appealing to individual member states over the heads of EU negotiators. He has also expressed concern about the impact that Brexit will have on trade between the UK and the Netherlands. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Mark Rutte appears to be slightly more positive, expressing cautious optimism during a joint press conference with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Merkel was in the Netherlands for talks with Rutte ahead of next week's EU meeting. Paul, I heard Merkel and Rutte took some nice photos during the visit. Yeah, that's true. Um, Merkel was here for just an evening. Yeah. Mm. She, it was a really it was a short very evening. Very quick, very she, quick. She just came for dinner, yeah. yeah. Just, it was a speed date. Yeah. It was yeah. It was a speed date, yeah. yeah. And uh, Margrethe and uh, Merkel, they met in uh, the Prime Minister's office, the little tower in the uh, northwestern uh, corner of the mm. Binnenhof. Um, and they uh, walked around in The Hague. Oh, so yeah. they uh, walked around the, 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 the whole fiver yeah. and uh, Rutte pointed out uh, that he never draws the curtains in his office because he likes to see, uh, he likes other people to see what's happening inside. Yeah. And because he's Dutch and Dutch people never draw their curtains. Right. That's also true, yeah. And it was very surprising to see that they uh, weren't speaking in German but in English. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. I, I th always thought that uh, Rutte spoke uh, excellent German. But he does speak reasonable German. Yeah, yeah but, but uh, they both speak excellent English. So mm, maybe yeah, that's more yeah. of a... I mean, I think probably ahead of the negotiations where they're doing a lot of stuff in English anyway, that you probably yeah. are just thinking about these things in English more than in yeah. German or Dutch. So, Gordon, uh, do you think that King Willem Alexander's uh, visit will be the most notable royal visit uh, the Netherlands has ever made to the UK? Well, there have been um, some... Um, Landmark visits by uh, Dutch uh, nobility and uh, royalty to uh, to the UK, but I think that this is not quite going to beat the one in 1688, when um, where Stadtholder William III uh, was invited by English Protestants to 
come over with an expeditionary force which is actually bigger than the Spanish Armada um, and invade the country and take the throne from James II, which he duly did and he was crowned in Westminster Abbey in 1689 in what English people call the Glorious Revolution. And now the, the, this came up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago because Boris Johnson, uh, in one of his uh, regular acts of stupidity, suggested <laughs> that um, uh, England hadn't been invaded or Britain hadn't been invaded um, for a thousand years and people immediately pointed out that actually it was invaded by the Dutch 300 years ago, but it's all been kind of glossed over and pretended that it was, it was a very consensual kind of uh, invasion. Mm -hmm. much the same way without lose, without shooting one shot. No, no, no. There was just no, no. There was quite a bit of violence. Was that? Yeah, oh. no, there was. No, I don't know. Sorry, then I'm yeah. sorry for this the speaking. Part of the, yeah. Uh, this is part, yeah, part it, of it. It was it was far more violent than the very benign French invasion of the Netherlands about uh, sort of 40, 30 years later, hmm. later on. Oh. No, sorry, 130 years later. No, Interesting. Uh, anyway. So, yeah, so, so uh, that, that, that's probably the most remarkable, the, the, the standout to all visit. Do we think that there's any chance that King Willem Alexander will say, you all are a bunch of idiots over this Brexit thing? Yeah, and uh, by the way, I'm, taking, my expeditionary you, I'm force. taking you over with my expeditionary Well, force. He, he has to fight a 96-year-old woman and... A 69-year-old man. I think he can. He, I think he can. Yeah, he can take. I it, bet you yeah. Belgium would loan him some horses for the cavalry. Yeah, yeah. just do that. And yeah. no, 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 I think they all they have to do, all they have to do, is sort of blockade the M25 with some forklift trucks. Yeah. <laughs> and they're done. They're done. Uh, yeah. And you have someone who can do this. We just, just, so we just need a good hashtag. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, Blockier villain. <no. laughs> Two international football matches dominate our sports coverage this week. The women's team are just two matches away from qualifying for next year's World Cup finals in France after dispatching Denmark in their playoff semi-final. Linette Bierstein bagged both goals, a second in injury time, in a 2-1 win in Fribourg that gave the Dutch a 4-1 aggregate victory. The European champions will now play Switzerland, who overcame Belgium on away goals. And on Saturday evening, it's one of the classic fixtures on the international calendar as a men's team take on Germany in the tournament that nobody understands the point of, the UEFA Nations League. <laughs> There's also a friendly match on Tuesday against Belgium, although Belgian football is currently in turmoil after police carried out raids at nine clubs and arrested five people as part of a major corruption investigation. Two referees, four agents and six club board members had their homes searched. The coach of Club Brugge was detained for questioning and the entire second division programme for this weekend in Belgium has been suspended. Wow. <laughs> so Wait, sports all of a sudden got interesting. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> interesting. Uh, I'm supposed to ask a snowboarding related question in here, right, Gordon? Something about yeah. Bibi and Mantel, Hunter uh, Snowboard? Bibi and Mantel, yeah, who's a uh, three time Paralympic champion uh, snowboarder, um, has said on Thursday she's giving up the sport to become a member of the International Paralympic Committee. Um, she's, which, given that she's 46 years old now. She's 46? She's 46. Wow, she yeah. looks a lot younger. She, I know, yeah, well, she's very, she keeps fit uh, snowboarding, obviously. Hmm. Um, and especially um, remarkable given that she's been treated for cancer nine times. Yeah, and she's now been diagnosed with, for, like, with cancer for a yeah. tenth time. Yes, that was revealed in the interview on the Real Dry Door on Thursday that the, the cancer's, um, yeah, she's been diagnosed with cancer for the tenth time while she was competing in Beyond Chang. So having been, had a cancer diagnosis, she then went out and uh, won two gold medals and kept quiet about it um, in the interviews um, so um, yeah we wish her good luck with her latest uh, round of treatment yeah and good luck with uh, being on the International Paralympic Committee yeah indeed police are trying to track down the owner of a lion cub that was abandoned in a cage in a field in the Utrecht province a jogger found the big cat that's believed to be five months old in Tienhoven on Sunday morning the cop was taken to a shelter in Annapalona while investigators tried to find out who dumped the animal in the field. Stichting Leo said it appears that the animal was raised in captivity and was intended to be kept as a pet. 
The cub has been offered to a lion shelter in Friesland by an anonymous caller, but it could not take the lion in as it is against safety rules to pick animals up. According to Stichting Leo, the animal is doing well, and you have named the cub Remy. It was probably a lucky escape that it didn't end up in a shelter in Friesland, because it would have been roped into <laughs> some kind of sweater peak protest. They would have <laughs> shaved it and given it a purple mohawk. Yeah, and, uh, and blackface makeup as well. Poor lion. Yeah, so it's, it avoids all that. We'll be discussing stolen art after this word from our sponsors. This is a weird commercial. Is it even a commercial? It's a commercial to ask for more commercials. Not commercials, just money. Money is pretty great. Yes, and we need some. DutchNews.nl is independent and receives no state or other funding. We work with professional journalists, translators, and photo agencies who understand the Netherlands well, and all of this comes at a price. And flavored Stroopwafels are a pretty big line item in our budget as well. So how can people support Gordon's Stroopwafel addiction? And not just mine, I should add. No, it's, it's mostly you. It is mostly mine. Yeah. You can donate via Ideal credit card or PayPal at dutchnews.nl forward slash donate dash to dash dutchnews. We will link to that in the liner notes. You can donate any amount you want, but of course more is uh, better. And if every single one of our listeners donate five euros, we've had enough to cover this podcast expenses for an entire year. Well, even the strobe waffles? Even the strobe waffles. It was announced this week that Dutch museums have at least 170 works of art in their collections, which may have been stolen from their Jewish owners during World War II, according to research by the Dutch Museums Association. In total, 42 different museums, including the Rijksmuseum and the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, appear to have stolen art in their collections, according to a list of all potentially stolen works identified to date. So where does this artwork uh, come from? Art theft and looting occurred on a massive scale during World War II. Countless pieces of art were stolen during the Holocaust. Many were destroyed. The Nazis were relentless in their efforts to get rid of the Jewish people and also their culture. Kunstschutz is the German term for the principle of preserving cultural heritage and artwork during armed Conflict and looting was done on an organized scale. Of course, the Germans have a word for this. Yeah, yeah. but of course, they also just wanted to obtain a lot of these uh, works of art for themselves, didn't they? It, it was taken for a variety of reasons, um, some of which was money. They took them, uh, confiscated a lot of valuable things from Jewish families yeah, and other families. Yeah, obviously uh, worth a lot of money. Yeah, and sold them. Some they took for their personal collections. There was sort of a bit of a game of one-upsmanship between Hitler and Göring for their uh, to, to see who could get the biggest and the best art collection. Mm. There was also a big push to collect things that the Third Reich felt were like of cultural importance and bring them to Germany. Um, so artists that they felt were like represented of the, the Aryan race and that sense of stuff and simultaneously they were destroying works that were important to Jewish and other cultures. Yeah and there were also stories about Jewish families that uh, gave away their valuables or their artworks to others for safekeeping or uh, to, to, to pay a price for something uh, uh, these people did for example. Uh, so yeah there, was, there are a lot of reasons why art um, uh, switched hands during yeah. the war. Yeah exactly sometimes people were blackmailed or sort of forced into handing over their artworks or selling them for a very low price much less than they're actually worth. Yeah, and, uh, and all of those artworks that were, that were sort of taken under these, like, circumstances are, are many of them are included on, like, this, this list. So yeah. it's not just art that, like, physically the Nazis just showed up and, like, ripped off of your walls, but also yeah. if you were a family that was fleeing and was forced to sell your artwork to buy passage out of... Everything had changed hands in an obscure way, yeah, basically. basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, and uh, now the museums are basically doing this audit of everything's in their collection to see what, what they have on their walls or in their, in their storage that, uh, that's actually been stolen or misappropriated from Jewish families. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you might be familiar with this like concept of the Monuments Men, which like comes from a movie and a book of the same name. So basically, after the war, the Allied
outside powers put together art experts to attempt to recover stolen art. It's sort of an interesting moment in history because the powers that be were really recognizing the importance of art in culture and pres trying to preserve like what had been destroyed. Previously, generally, you know, if you blew up art museums and buildings of cultural significance and stuff like that, it was just considered sort of like the cost of war. But after yeah. World War II, in part because the Nazis tried so hard to just like eradicate like Jewish culture and and the culture of of say you know gypsies and and people of other sort of like uh, groups that they didn't like, um, and partly because you know society had sort of shifted away from this sort of like scorch and burn tactics of previous wars and more into these ideas of like you know you should not just carpet bomb a city into oblivion because there are civilians living there and that kind of stuff and along with that came this idea that you know even if this artwork is part of a, a government that that you are you know in conflict with that doesn't mean that you should destroy its cultural heritage yeah. it's kind of interesting yeah but i think there's also a whole dimension of the war that um, that it was, was almost a war for culture and for um, life rights right because i mean the, the nazis saw themselves as you know custodians of, as rightful heirs of western culture and therefore they wanted to you know appropriate all the cultural heritage of the renaissance for themselves right. and acquire it and, and but hitler had plans to have a great exhibition of all his stolen works after the war yeah. you know, after, he, after he'd won what, what the monuments men did was they went around the whole of europe trying to find the art the nazis had hoarded and they found it in all kinds of strange places like you know the, the, there was a salt mine in france that they did that they went into and they found hundreds of for paintings all kind of all kind of preserved and in packaging because you know the nazis thought that after the war they could put them back on display because yeah, they claimed that heritage very well labeled and yeah. uh, where yeah. it came from yeah so that yeah. basically helped them uh, uh, bring these uh, pieces of art uh, to to their rightful owners, and the Germans also um, uh, participated in uh, destroying works of art that they didn't find acceptable, acceptable yeah. or valuable enough. Uh, so there are a lot of paintings from from Picasso and from other uh, paintings from his era that that were destroyed during the war because they were simply uh, deemed not worthy. Enough no, there's this whole concept of entartete Kunst, you know, degenerate yeah. art, which they even had an exhibition before the war of art that they deemed you know was was wrong or the yeah. kind of style you know all, all modernism basically was wrong and they wanted to destroy it they wanted to preserve what they saw as traditional renaissance art yeah something mm -hmm. like 20 percent of all of the art in europe was looted during world war ii which is an insanely high yeah. number mm -hmm. and they estimate that something like a hundred over a hundred thousand pieces are still missing they still haven't been returned to their rightful owners so does that mean that the monuments man or uh, however you want to call it were pretty successful in returning these artworks to their rightful owners? They were somewhat successful in doing this. The problem with some of this stuff now is, is that, you know, a lot of time has passed and, you know, all things are difficult to trace sort of during the war. So it's, you know, there's attempts to return things to heirs, but it can be unclear, like, who the heirs are. And like you said, I mean, it wasn't always just, like, Nazis showing up and, like, pulling a painting off the wall. Like, if a Jewish family fled and sold their belongings, I mean, how much of that should they be compensated for necessarily, I think, creates a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And also, like, you know, m maybe the guy that they were selling this art to under pressure for having to leave was sort of a bad person and, like, taking advantage of the situation and not compensating them fully. But if that person turned around and sold those paintings again and then they were sold again, I mean, the person who those paintings ended up with, right, they, they didn't do anything yeah. wrong yeah, in the didn't. beginning. So. It raises a lot of uh, questions morally and also legally. It's a, it's a very difficult uh, right. yeah. question. And there are whole issues of who you compensate and how you compensate them because you say often the, the work was sold on either during or after the war and people bought it in good faith yeah. not realising it was stolen or misappropriated art and sometimes of course the paperwork was all forged yeah. so you know you, you, if you had a hot painting you know, a stolen Jewish painting you would then sort of devise 
um, a whole paper trail to show to, to to look as if it was legitimately obtained. Right. Well, and also, I mean, you know, some of this stuff just nobody knows kind of where it came from, or like it's hard now to go back and say like you know you had silver or you had china or you had some sort of like household item that was looted and stolen, but you know people don't always have you know receipts. It can be difficult to identify these things. Mm. I mean, people whole families were massacred during World War Two. So I mean, it's a really difficult um thing i think to like sort of rectify now but they are trying to to make some steps forward so in 2009 the museum association in the netherlands requested that dutch museums look into their collection to see if any piece had questionable origin this is where this report came from the only museum that hasn't completed that is the Rijksmuseum, which has a lot to do with the fact that the Rijksmuseum is huge yes. and owns just an absurd amount of art <laughs> um so it's been a little hard i think for them it, it's taken a bit more effort for them to do it mm. than some of these smaller um smaller museums but yes yeah, so there's a lot of discussion about like how you best return these. Should the museums keep them? Should they compensate families? That kind of stuff. And, yeah. and where does Boymans van Beuningen step into this story? Yeah, so the Boymans van Beuningen Museum in Rotterdam is uh, kind of interesting in this context because the director during the war, uh, Dick Hanema, was a very ambitious young museum director, but he was also a Nazi sympathizer. So he sold a lot of art to Hitler, about 500 paintings. Um, during the course of the war. Um, so the, 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 that museum are also very conscious of their heritage during the war and the complications of it, and they're, they're quite open up front about it, and they have exhibitions of, you know, about what uh, Hanama uh, did during the war. And they actually carried out their audit, and they were actually sort of pleasantly surprised to find that actually there were only five stolen items in the, in the museum's collection. I think they feared there would be... Um, many a more, lot more, many given, more. The, given that history. Yeah. yeah, but he was kind of interested as well, um, Hanemar, because uh, one of the other things um, uh, about uh, the art that the Nazis artists obtained is because well, some of it was fake, some of it was forgeries. Yeah. It was a famous, oh, really? There was a famous fake painting in the 1930s, um, which was a painting that uh, everybody thought at the time was, uh, was by Vermeer. It was a, a Bible scene, which actually turned out to be being um, faked by um, an artist called Han van Meechen. Mm. Um, who uh, and then going obtained this painting in good faith, thinking that he paid a huge amount of money for it, and actually traded, I think, about two hundred other works of art for it, thinking it was an actual Vermeer, and hung it in his own house, and discovered when he was on trial at Nuremberg that it was a fake. <laughs> good. <laughs> Which is a bit of a blow to. Yeah. Him going, good. So, yeah. That's a good. I good. I feel good about him finding that out on the trial at Nuremberg. Yeah. Just a little extra twist of the knife. So, but yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, I mean, obviously there was a large Jewish population in the Netherlands. There were a lot of Jews, you know, like Anna Frank's family who moved, relocated from Germany to the Netherlands prior to the war breaking out in an effort to get away from the thing that's the, you know, things that the Nazis were doing there. Um, many of mm -hmm. these families had art collections. There's several famous art collections that were sort of sold off at kind of rock bottom prices or kind of traded in exchange for freedoms and these sorts of things. A number of these things from these collections have ended up in Dutch museums over the years. So there's a lot of discussion about what these museums should do and in what context you place these works of art and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, comp whether or not compensation should be given. I mean, and how you compensate, right? Because, yeah, you know, yeah. if, if this is, you know, now our, you know, Paul's and I's, you know, sort of grandparents, great-grandparents generation, so they can have quite a few sort of heirs out there in the world. So I think it gets, it can be very complicated to sort of, um, appropriately like return or refund you know and, and compensate for sort of what happened yeah and there is of course the question of you know what you do with the paintings once you discover that it's a book is still not do you just compensate the family and carry on displaying it yeah. or do you give it back to them yeah, it's, yeah. It's a very well and who do you give it back to yeah, right exactly. so like you yeah. know if you have you know if you're 
grandparents, great grandparents survived the war and went on to have five or six kids who went on to have five or six kids. Now there is a generation of yeah. great grandchildren of 30 or 40 of them, right? And there's only one painting or two yeah. paintings, right? Like, you can't get to pieces. You can't, just, right, exactly. So I, I or think you there's can, some, and you can ask her questions about more that. money. Uh, for yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's also a, a larger discussion that kind of goes on in the art world about like who should own art and like what the public right to access that art is. I mean, some of these works are like of historical importance and there is some discussion like I think in the art community that works of historical importance should not be in private collections where people can't see them but should be on display in museums. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that to some degree also comes into play. I mean, it's just one of many, many things yeah. that is a terrible sort of uh, history yeah, that happened yeah. of, the, of World War II. It is. It's one of the legacies of the war. But, yeah, but just the, the, the sheer difficulty of actually um, uh, organising this kind of display by, yeah, kind of illustrated by things like the, the, the sticker collection, some of the, the most famous collection of uh, stolen Nazi art, which has uh, belonged to a collector um, called uh, Jacques Kautsticker. Um who had about 200 paintings um, in his collection. He was he died on his way um, to trying to flee uh, when the Nazis first invaded. I think he, he had an accident on a boat. Yeah. He was, and, and as a result, his, his, the Nazis then basically obviously pilfered his whole collection. It ended up in museums all around the world. Yeah. And actually just the, the, the physical process of getting this these paintings back together they're, they're worth a total of about you know, uh, well they were sold for two and a half million guilders yeah which yeah. is yeah. way below its actual price way below its actual price and then but then it ended up being scattered all over the place um, initially acquired by Goering and then uh, obviously sold on after the war yeah. and trying to retrace all those paintings and relocate them and then decide what you do with them is it's just a massively yeah. fiddly yeah. exercise in 2006 uh, the, the Dutch government decided to give over 200 paintings back to the uh, Goudsticker family yeah. which was in the uh, which the Dutch state apparently owned but some of them came from several museums uh, uh, around the Netherlands and there is now as we should say as well that there's a website has been set up um, by the committee because there's a committee in the Netherlands yeah. that, that, that has to decide on whether art has been stolen who it belongs to and they've set up a website now where if you think that there is a piece of art belonging to family out there somewhere then you can make a claim and they can uh, they can they can assess the ownership yeah and there's now sort of like you know as the thing that came out about this report is there's this big push about you know museums in the netherlands looking into their own collections and mm. seeing what's there and what's stolen and oh. trying to figure out what to do with it so it's it's good that they're trying to you know make amends for these sort of crimes and not profit continue to profit mm. right from the crimes of of the Nazis, but on the other hand, I mean, this is just a very complicated and difficult thing, I think, to do. Yeah, there are also several amazing stories uh, uh, from World War II when uh, countries were attacked by Germany um, that were evacuating their national museums. Uh, I believe the Louvre Museum in Paris was yeah. evacuated within two days. Yeah, there's a really excellent book called The Rape of Europa, um, and it's there's also a documentary of the same name, and I'm not sure if the book is based on the documentary or the documentary is based on the book, but yeah, it kind of outlines like how, you know, what they sort of did, you know, the Nazis, how much the Nazis wanted art and like sort of how they acquired it and like the means to do so, but also like what people who had art were doing to try to preserve this and they were Parisian the French authorities were very concerned that you know, of course the Nazis were going to bomb the Louvre so they evacuated the Louvre in two days which if you've ever been to the Louvre seems insane to me um, including detailing how they took out the winged victory which basically like is extremely heavy and very fragile and so there's like a lot of yeah sort of interesting anecdotes I think in that about how the lengths that people went to to attempt to like protect their art and also the lengths that the Nazis went to to like take it and what they did with it there was this story I don't remember who was mentioning this before but basically like the Nazis had a train full of art and they basically yeah. drove it into a salt mine and then bombed the entrance in an effort to just like hide the art until after the war was over because they thought that they were going to win and that they could then like 
display yeah. all of his art. So yeah, there's yeah. a lot of crazy stories like they that. They were, yeah, they were absolutely obsessed. I mean, Goering in particular was absolutely just obsessed with, uh, with with obtaining art. There's a there's a famous uh, anecdote from um, uh, when uh, d- during the uh, war in North Africa, Rommel, who was uh, head of the Africa Corps, was um, went went to see Goering to discuss uh, what armaments his his troops needed, and Goering took him down from Munich to Rome on his private train. But Goering just didn't talk at all about uh, military stuff. All he was interested in was what art and sculpture he could nick from the museums in yeah. Rome. And Rommel got off the train absolutely fuming. But you know, Goering, who was head of the, arm, the German armed forces, right. was a guy who was supposed to sign off all the tanks and guns that he needed, and he hadn't. He just wasn't interested yeah. at all. All he wanted to know was about was what he could raid from the Roman museums. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had like a an actual like division, which I now cannot remember the name in German, of like a military division that basically their job was to just like go loot like art and cultural artifacts and stuff like that. And they yeah. sort of like had these lists, and they were very keen to sort of get in ahead of 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 too much destruction being caused by the war to like get this like actual art out. So it was it's really an amazing, I think, you know, fascinating so, story. Fascinating uh, story. From the, from the war. Yeah. That is all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also donate to the Dutch News donation drive. My thanks to Gordon Derrick and Paul Paters. I'm Molly Quell. We'll be back next week. Thank you.